Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we look at prisons, past, future, and of course, in the present. 25 years ago, America was in the midst of a violent crime wave. The country was scared. State and federal lawmakers responded with tougher laws and sentences that were mandatory and longer. That throw-away-the-key attitude was what the public demanded, and it was politically popular. Since then, many more prisons were built as inmate populations exploded. But did it work? Were those who broke the law being rehabilitated or just punished? Even the most devout law and order advocates have balked at the cost of prison construction and housing inmates. It may not be a consensus, but the conclusion many have arrived at is that there has to be a better way. Our guest today is one of the pioneers in finding that more effective way, Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. Secretary of Wetzel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, I'm going to read a quote that uh, it was actually an article that quoted you as well, but this is from someone else. It says, we use... We use it in a punitive way, talking about uh, today's prisons, and we use it way too much. So what I see is smaller numbers and smaller sentences in the future. You agree with that statement? I do. I do. I think um, we've seen that trend over the uh, matter of fact, uh, P, I think it was Pew Foundation just announced that we're at a 10-year low for population, both federal, Naturally. state, okay. and, and jail population at a 10-year low. That's certainly the trend. And I know uh, after November, there were some folks uh, who, in the circles I travel, as far as people who are really interested in continuing to reform criminal justice, who were wringing their hands a little bit. But my sense is that um, there's a large consensus, bipartisan, around uh, nonviolent crimes, that that our approach to nonviolent crimes um, doesn't make sense, and we need to continue to reduce um, reduce incarceration for that group, and and uh, some of that is is frankly uh, largely drawn from the fact that men, most of the not or at least yeah most of the nonviolent crime is driven by addiction and mental illness, and with the opioid epidemic, we're realizing that we're not going to arrest or or build our way out of it. So I think there's still momentum around that. At the end of the Obama administration, last year and a half, two years, there was a lot of talk from from that perspective around reducing the length of sentence for violent crimes. I don't see that getting much traction under this administration. Uh, well, really, I mean, is that something that even uh, those who are progressives and, and think that we do need some reforms would look at. I mean, when you're talking about violent criminals. Yeah, I don't think so. I think the the point of discussion comes around end-of-life stuff. Um, so once, Elderly patients. Yeah, so once there was just an article in the New York Times either yesterday or today, uh, an op-ed about that, that once somebody gets over a certain age, they're, they're very unlikely to commit a crime. Pennsylvania's a good example of that. We're a life-means-life state. So we have 5,000 people who are going to die in, in our prisons. That necessitates us having a nursing home and another 150 uh, personal care beds and those kinds of things. And they're all violent uh, violent individuals who have committed violent crimes. So um, that's really, I think, the only point of discussion around that. And we've seen the federal level use clemency as a mechanism and compassionate release. That's not really an option for us in the state. Okay, so what in your mind has to happen to make the situation better? I think we really need to, I think the key component is the front end of the system. We need, really need to make good decisions. And I, we were on this, I talked about bail before, but making right. good decisions. And that involves, first of all, understanding what drove the crime or the alleged crime. 
And if it's addiction or mental illness, we got to plug them into treatment. That's that's a, a no brainer. And we can do that cheaper and more effective than than incarcerating them. And we just went through the second justice reinvestment initiative. And one of the most interesting slides was a slide where they took a group of individuals who the judge had 100 percent discretion to sentence them from state prison, county jail, um, just probation or probation with treatment. And you would everything, all things being equal, the people who had the best outcomes, who committed less crimes afterwards were the people who were not incarcerated and were given treatment. That's that's the sweet spot. But we have to put um, metrics up front so we understand who are people who we can divert and who are people who need to be locked up. And and we got to make better decisions at the front of the system. I think that's really the keystone. Is that being done now? Has it been done in the past? Some counties. You know, Pennsylvania is a state where we have a wide variety of practices. Uh, there's some counties that are doing... Uh, more work up front, especially around the addiction. Again, the opioid epidemic is driving a lot of this. One of the recommendations coming out of this justice reinvestment initiative that was chaired by our soon-to-be sworn-in new attorney general, Josh Shapiro, is really putting a group together, and let's really look hard at how we systematically around the state make better decisions at the front end of the system. So I think that's there. I think we're seeing a growing treatment infrastructure because when we say we want to divert someone, right, the other thing we say as citizens is we want to divert them to some place that, that we're still going to be safe. Like just deflecting somebody who's addicted and, and out there stealing or doing whatever, just not locking them up because we can't afford it, that doesn't make sense either. That, that makes about as much sense as locking them up and doing nothing else, right? So we have to be able to plug them into something and a mechanism to do that. Having, for instance, um, you have to go to treatment, and if you don't, your bail will be revoked. That's a good model to, to force someone into treatment, which is effective. Mm-hmm. What percent, well, okay, before I get the percentages, let me ask about the numbers. What is uh, the population in Pennsylvania state prisons right now? We're down uh, well below 50,000. I think we're about 49.2. So at the apex of our population, June of 2012, we hit 51.7. It's the highest Pennsylvania state population's ever been. Um, since that time, we're down about 2,500 inmates, so um, slightly over 1% a year reduction, which is pretty historic for Pennsylvania because up to that point, uh, basically 40 years in a row, maybe there was one year in the 40 where we didn't grow, but our average growth over the 24 years before I got in in 2011 was 1,500 inmates a year. So we've not only eliminated the growth, but now we're, we're slowly uh, reducing population, consistent with the nation. Why? Why do you think your population has gone down? Well, I think a couple things. One of the things we, we were able to do working with our partners at the Pearl Board is make some of the internal processes more efficient. And, and the one I point out to the most was we looked at why people were getting rejected for parole. The number one reason was they didn't complete treatment. So we looked at how we signed people up, how we delivered treatment, and got that more efficient. So more people completed treatment, which ultimately resulted in more people getting out. That wasn't changing the standard. That was us eliminating some bureaucracy. We also passed um, some laws here in Pennsylvania in 2012 in the first Justice Reinvestment Initiative um, that looked at, at our response to parole violations and how we use community correction centers that had a positive impact. And I think the third thing that was pretty significant was the Pennsylvania Supreme Court threw out notice mandatories. So we kind of um, eliminated most of the mandatories around drugs, if not all, and uh, that's had a positive effect. Although they were reintroduced, they didn't uh, pass 
um, kind of contrary to the trend around the country. Um, but I'm sure they'll be reintroduced again. And that'll be an interesting thing to watch. One of the things I need, should add to this narrative is that crime continues to go down in Pennsylvania, right? So if you look at over the past two years, if you look at a combination of, of crime in those two years, Pennsylvania is sixth as far as crime reduction, uh, sixth on, in a good way. So we're at a place where the mandatories have been thrown out and crime continues to go down two years ago, stay flat the most recent. Um, so that would suggest that um, we can continue to reduce our population and, and not have an impact on public safety. What percentage of uh, those who uh, are incarcerated in a state prison do have substance abuse issues? Uh, 70 would be the conservative estimate. It's probably uh, next year's numbers will probably be closer to 75%. One of the things obviously driving that is opioids. We went from uh, 6% of our commitments uh, addicted to opioids to 12% over the past six years. Uh, that's a really significant jump for that number to double. And then all the associated costs, um, medical issues with that group, all, they're also a big cost driver in our system. But along with that, I mean, many of the people who have substance abuse issues have also committed a crime, uh, most of them to uh, support their habit. Uh, you know, that's something that you have to weigh uh, against each other as well, right? How do you do that? Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing is intercede in their, their uh, life of crime earlier on by getting them the treatment they need. The sooner we do that, the sooner we get someone treatment from the time they're addicted or from the time they become known to the system, the better off we, we are. I think the second thing uh, that we do is there has to be a, a component of accountability with this, right? But our response to crime should be equal in proportion to crime itself and the logical path to both have the individual uh, not commit another crime, but also have the victim made whole. So if you if if I steal from you and and I go to state prison versus if I steal from you and go to county jail, you're more likely to get your restitution to county jail because work release and all those things. Um, state prison, it's certainly going to de delay it. I mean, our our. Uh, range what we pay uh, inmates is between 17 cents and 42 cents an hour. You're not going to get a lot of restitution from that. Um, you still will get it uh, potentially when when I get out of state prison. Although once I get out of state prison, especially with a felony conviction, you have those collateral consequences where I'm less likely to get a job and those kinds of things. Um, so I think the, the sweet spot is to identify somebody early on, first time they have contact with the system. Don't just say, we don't want to lock them up because they're expensive. Let's put them on a path where they will not commit another crime. I think that's moving forward. That's where we really need to focus on. Mm -hmm. And that kind of gets back to one of our original uh, conversations is whether we're punishing or rehabilitating, right? Yeah, I, but they're not either or. Like, we don't live in an either or world. Mm -hmm. um, a, a portion of... Um, our system is just desserts. If, if there's going to be a consequence for inappropriate behavior, we do the same thing in parenting, right? Um, so punishing isn't always a bad thing. It's just the punishment can't be like they say justice is blind. It can't be blind to outcomes, right? So the punishment should be a punishment that research suggests to us will be effective in having the person less likely to commit a crime. I think if every decision we made in the criminal justice system was focused and we measured whether it was a good decision by the outcome, understanding that, look, some people are still going to do it. We could do everything right and some people are still going to do it. But we have a baseline of, you know, 40 years of data. Let's measure it against that baseline. Washington State has this um, component in their law where you have to, in order to pass criminal justice legislation, 
there has to be a research base that suggests it's going to be effective and there's a measurement. And uh, I also believe there's a sunset component. So if it's not effective, it sunsets, it's eliminated. I would. I don't know why we don't have that in every state. Why wouldn't we expect outcomes out of our criminal justice system? We expect that out of our medical system, right? And we measure it. And when mortality rates at a hospital goes up, they get in trouble. I think we need to take the same approach um, in criminal justice in general, corrections uh, in particular. And this should really resonate with a with a conservative Republican uh, legislation he, legislative body here and, and in uh, D.C. That notion of return on investment, that notion on... Um, measuring outcomes, performance-based, this should resonate with people. Understand that just uh, kind of blindly getting tough on crime does not give you outcomes. So we, I think that's that's an important component in the discussion I hope we have this spring. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel. We're talking about the the future of corrections in Pennsylvania and really across the country. Coming up a little bit later in the program, we're going to be speaking with Heather Ann Thompson, is author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. Things a lot different today, although Secretary Wetzel tells me that not in all states are they they much different. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-753. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can go to WITF's Facebook page and uh, leave a question or comment. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. I don't want to get off track here, but uh, you told me before the show when we were talking about that book that there are some states where conditions, and we're going to hear about the conditions in Attica in 1971, where conditions haven't improved a whole lot in, in some prisons, right? Yeah, there's there's some systems that have some significant challenges, not the least of which is the federal system that's uh, significantly overcrowded and understaffed. I mean, we've been pretty fortunate here historically, and this is not just, you know, a Wolf administration or Corbett administration. Historically, we've had uh, good staffing levels, certainly since the Camp Hill riots right here in, in 1989. Um but we, there's states, um, I mean, one of the big uh, dividing lines between the haves and the have-nots in states, um, ironically, are, are union states versus non-union states, where you see um, some states where correction officers literally get paid $18,000 a year. Oh, wow. Uh, so they make more money uh, smuggling stuff in and just creates a horrible environment. And, and I think when you talk about outcomes, you can't have a discussion about outcomes without having a discussion about the conditions of confinement inside prisons. And, and I, I think it's important to look at it in two ways. One, there's a huge body of research about bad conditions inside prisons and staff wellness. Now, we've really struggled with staff wellness here in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, it's an intense environment to work in. Our staff, our contact staff, um, you know, is able to retire earlier as a recognition of the danger and the challenges of the job. Those conditions of confinement affect staff significantly, but also... Um, inmates. And when you talk about significantly overcrowded, under-resourced systems that don't have programming, that don't have um, ways that individuals can both be productively occupied and get uh, trained skills that they can use to stay out, um, you're looking at, at places that just create more crime, literally create more crime. So conditions of confinement count. And this notion of uh, the humanity of individuals who are incarcerated sounds, um, you know, touchy-feely or hug-a-thug or whatever you want to call it. But the reality is, again, if our focus is reducing crime, 
that's a, in, implicit in that is that you can't treat somebody terribly for their, their period of in, incarceration and expect them to be self-actualized the day they walk out the door. Not going to happen. Okay, so give me a description, if you would, of a condition, a prison that has conditions that are conducive to a better outcome. Yeah, I think if you look at, um, at I, I mean, this sounds very self-serving, but if, if you uh, would visit the vast majority of our facilities, what you would see is staff who are trained, um, and all our staff are not only just trained uh, as traditional staff, but trained in how to deal with mentally ill individuals. Um, you would see drug and alcohol programs, uh, mental health programs. You'd see education. You'd see vocational opportunities. But you'd also see a fair justice system within uh, within the prisons. So disciplinary uh, would be meted out in an appropriate manner, not overused. We've struggled with that historically, frankly. When we're going, on, we're kind of redoing that whole system. But when you talk about places like Attica and those things, you look at inmates being mistreated. Uh, generally, the relationship between uh, inmates and and staff. Are, it's not present, and, and it's uh, a very contentious um, back and forth. Um, and then those things start piling on. Then you have a lot of inmate idleness, and when all that stuff starts starts um, piling on, and, and otherwise innocuous incident like a fight, and you'd say innocuous is a fight, but it really is in, in the context of corrections, um, turns into big issues. And a lot of that goes back to conditions of confinement and how individuals who are incarcerated or treated. Let's take a phone call from Ellen in Harrisburg. Ellen, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. My question for Secretary Wetzel is that with um, the vast majority of inmates that are incarcerated today are not only there for a, a crime they've committed, but usually that crime is the result of uh, their addiction problems, why we aren't turning our prisons into addiction treatment centers, so that when these individuals are released, they've also received uh, addiction treatment. All right. Thank you very much. You've touched on this. Yeah, we actually do that. So yeah. every, every one of our prisons has at least one inpatient drug and alcohol program. And the sweet spot for that, quite frankly, is to get someone the inpatient drug and alcohol right before they get out and follow it with appropriate level in the community, right? That's what gets us our best outcomes. I think the caveat to that, though, hearkening uh, back to our earlier conversation around who should be incarcerated is but we have good uh, drug and alcohol programs and good treatment programs, but when we send individuals to state prison to get, um, to get treatment and there's not a public safety, uh, another public safety reason to do that, they're likely to come out more likely to commit a crime because of the environment they're in, separate from the treatment. So prisons, kind of what you talked about earlier, I mean, I've heard people describe sometimes uh, prisons are kind of like college for uh, criminals sometimes. Yep. I mean, prison is criminogenic. It creates crime because of the environment. And that's why we need to use it with precision. Now, we've talked about uh, substance abuse, and you've mentioned mental illness a few times. What percentage of inmates in state prison are mentally ill? About 28%. 28%. It has become de facto, in many cases, de facto prisons are de facto mental hospitals. Yes. Yes. Both inpatient, outpatient. I mean, when you think of uh, 28% of 50,000, right? So we're talking about, what, 14,000 individuals with mental illness. 
uh, inside our facilities, including about 8% with serious and persistent mental illness. Um, which no one, you wouldn't have imagined um, that this would what corrections would become. Well, how do you deal with that? Well, I mean, the key, the front line of, of mental health services is our correctional staff. Um, so we focus a lot around training. Uh, we really focus around creating environments, especially for people with serious and persistent mental illness, um, create an environment within prisons that look a lot like when we had a lot of state hospitals. And and my uh, my colleague Ted Dallas often reminds me that institutionalization probably doesn't make sense for that group either. But but you can't. I think you have to understand that it's essential that we have a real behavioral health safety net in the community. And I'll, there's an initiative that we're, the state is partially funding right here in Dolphin County, where uh, we're bringing a group in Council State Governments Justice Center who are doing this initiative called Stepping Up, where they're doing a deep dive in both criminal justice and behavioral health data. Dolphin County agreed to be kind of the guinea pig with this. So they're going to look at everybody who comes in jail, who the jail identifies as mentally ill, who was known to the system, who is actually mentally ill, and then how many are connected at the back end. The outcomes are going to be terrible because they're terrible everywhere. But but we're using it as a, a little laboratory to learn how can we do a better job. First of all, how are we missing people? Second of all, uh, from Ted Dallas's standpoint. Who's the Secretary of Human Services. Secretary Service of Human Services. If, if we fill a gap in the community in this way, can we get less people coming to jail? And then third, what can we do on the back end to connect people? So it's a really exciting initiative. It's one of the first, I think, 10 counties in the country to do it. And really, uh, Laud, uh, Dauphin County, obviously George Hartwick's a, this is a big issue for him. They have a County district Commission. attorney, Ed Marsico, who's, um, who's pretty forward thinking. And um, so we really appreciate them stepping up to, to help us. I mean, everything is front end. Every good every good practice starts at the front end, and that's why uh, we're starting in Dolphin County. Let's uh, take another phone call from Bob in Harrisburg. Bob, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I like what you're saying, John. Uh, one thing that's really troubling, uh, we heard during the uh, Trump campaign uh, cries of lock her up regarding Hillary, and it seems as if for the longest time we've had this kind of back and forth where we get tough on crime at times at other times we start looking at prison reform uh, as far as it being an economically driven event we found that the privatization of prisons has resulted in a much larger number of people being incarcerated for all sorts of offenses so uh, in terms of the rosiness of the future and given the fact that we do have an incoming fully Republican Congress and president who seem to be more geared toward some sort of an incarcerative mindset. What do you think is going to happen? All right. Thank you for your call, Bob. Yeah, actually, I, I, I'm not uh, I don't have concerns. So, first of all, understand that federal um, federal criminal justice policy has limited effect on the state. Uh, second, understand that um, a lot of the reform at the federal level was pushed from the right. Um, and, and the third thing that's rather interesting is one of the things that stood in the way of the Smart Crime Act was Jeff Sessions and the fact that he's now attorney general, ironically enough, make it more likely that's going to get passed. So I, I really don't have much concern. Even here in Pennsylvania, one of the biggest advocates for criminal justice reform has been the Commonwealth Foundation. So I don't have those concerns. Conservative group, yeah. Yep. I think the one area 
that the Obama administration, that was actually started by George W. Bush, and the Obama administration doubled down on it as justice reinvestment, where that went from a program that was about $2 million a year to about $27 million a year, which invests money into, it, it basically incentivizes states to reduce their population. That's the one thing that um, everyone kind of hopes continues. We have really good outcomes. The states are being lauded for um, kind of leading corrections reform. So hopefully that, that stays. Mm-hmm. We had a call from uh, Linda in Hummelstown, didn't want to stay on the line. Wants to know, uh, what is the, the psychology of these prisoners? She heard and believes that many are bright people. Uh, what makes them become bad people? And that's in quotes. Is it risk taking or, or, or what? And I th- want to get to education because I know this is something that uh, that you feel yeah. is, is very important. But go ahead, uh, if you would, with her question. Yeah, I think, I mean, real brief if you reverse engineer and you look at who comes in our system, 50% don't have a high school diploma. We know that uh, a young black kid who drops out of school is a 70% lifetime likelihood of being incarcerated. Um, we also know that uh, children living in poverty, one in seven children living in poverty have a parent incarcerated. Um, if you have a parent incarcerated, you're more likely to be truant, which means you're more likely to be expelled, which means you're more likely to be incarcerated. So I think education is one of the key things, um, economic opportunity. We have um, our poor areas uh, have more crime, send more people to us. Um, And also then addiction. And then, you know, probably 10, 15 percent are just bad people who need to be locked up for a long time. Mm. A couple other topics I want to touch on before we do get to to talking about the Attica. Mentors. You've also I've I've heard you talk about how important a mentor is for uh, someone who leaves the system. Absolutely. Uh, Brett Buckland, our our head researcher, um, did a study in 2009, looked at parole violators, people who came back um, while on parole, not not necessarily for a new crime, and compared them to people who were on parole and completed it successfully. The one significant difference between those two groups, people who stayed out are more likely to have a mentor than people who stayed in. Similar research done on people graduating from college. People who graduate from college and have a mentor, more likely to get a job, more likely to make more money earlier in their career. Mentoring works. Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Boys and Girls Club. We've seen mentoring models that that really, uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, mentoring models that really have good outcomes, meaning people are more successful human beings. So mentoring works for all of us. Secretary Wetz, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. So uh, we have a a, a new legislature being sworn in today. Uh, If you could walk out the door here at the station today and make a move or moves, a couple moves that uh, uh, could take effect right away and make a difference in the outcomes of uh, those who are incarcerated, what now, what would it be? Yeah, so I'm going to, two, number one, I, I would require any criminal justice legislation to have a research base. To, you have to prove that there's a reason to believe this would be effective. You have to target a behavior or, or something that you want to see, and it would be sunsetted. So we would force our criminal justice system to have outcomes. Second thing is is a piece of legislation we're actually going to look for a partner and introduce, and we're calling it the First Chance Act, which creates grant programs for children of incarcerated parents. I think it's essential that we focus on this generation well, given the numbers, one in seven kids in poverty, one in nine black kids, one in 28 Hispanic kids, and one in 56 uh, white kids have a parent incarcerated. 
that's a group we should really care about. So I think those are the two things I'd really focus on. Pennsylvania Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. One of the nation's worst prison uprisings occurred at New York State's Attica Prison in September 1971. Thirty-nine men, including eight hostages, were killed when state police and corrections officers stormed the prison after a four-day standoff. There are aspects of what happened at Attica that resonate today. So why did it take 45 years to write the story? Heather Ann Thompson is author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Heather Ann Thompson, welcome to the program. Great to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so I'll ask that question uh, right up front. Why did it take 45 years to write this book? Well, this was a, this was a very important prison protest that I think for your listeners that just heard a uh, talk from Mr. Wetzel about what conditions are like in prison, uh, they'll quickly understand. Uh, things were uh, bad as well in 1971. Uh, it was a, a moment when there was a lot of protest. In this case, though, the state of New York shut down the protest very violently and, uh, and thereafter really have tried to protect the records to make sure that nobody uh, understood the full scope of how bad the retaking was. And so the book took a really long time to write, uh, in part because the records have been shut down. They've been uh, barred from view. Um, And so part of the book writing was trying to just figure out the story, you know, where those records were and how to get the story. But you actually did get access to records that many people haven't seen, correct? Well, uh, that is true, and and indeed quite by accident. Uh, the book took 13 years to write and probably couldn't have been written at all had it not been for the survivors who are, are still so determined to tell their stories, uh, both the hostage survivors and the prisoner survivors. But uh, to really get at the story, to really get at the full scope of what I argue was nothing short of a cover-up, and I don't use that word lightly, um, that required me actually stumbling across some state records that were in a courthouse that undoubtedly uh, nobody knew were there. Um, they have since disappeared, but but they did let me see um, sort of how state officials worked really hard to protect the police, to make sure that uh, what they had done on that day of the retaking was never going to see the light of day of a courtroom. Well, we want to talk about that because it is truly, uh, I mean, it's its incredible, the, the story that you do tell about that, about the retaking of the prison. But let's go back to 1971, before September 1971. What were conditions like at Attica? Well, you know, much like today, uh, prisons are these places that are completely shut away from society, and so most citizens don't know what goes on behind bars. But in 71, what was going on was pretty egregious. Um, the men inside were being fed on less than 63 cents a day. They were uh, routinely denied medical care to the point where, um, you know, injuries would turn into, to, uh, you know, chronic injuries uh, would turn into something fatal. Um, people lost their teeth because there was no dental care, which again sounds a bit like a luxury till you realize you need your teeth to eat. Um, there were uh, lots of incidents of racial abuse, and all of this went on in a context where people inside were trying to ask for help. They were writing letters 
trying to go through the system. Uh, and when none of that really worked, uh, eventually they just explode in frustration. And that leads to what, you know, what I try to suggest is a, a really extraordinary human rights protest with, uh, within the prison. Let's go back to uh, early September 1971. The uprising itself, kind of, we had Secretary Wetzel talking about a fight as kind of innocuous because it happens every day in a prison. But uh, what started this uprising was really kind of a, something that does happen every day in a prison. But what happened that it rose to this great protest? Well, I think that, um, again, just like today, people uh, misunderstand what, what will lead people to that kind of explosion. And, and often what it is is just simply not being heard for, for days and months and weeks on end. In the case of the Attica men, by the way, many of whom, this is a maximum security facility, but some of them were in there, very, very young guys, parole violators. And it was only after they had just completely lost patience with being ignored that one relatively minor incident, which is that prison management yet again uh, tried to clamp down on uh, the guys, just kind of explodes. And what really starts off as just an explosion of violence uh, very quickly and actually quite accidentally, a gate opens accidentally, becomes uh, an extraordinary protest where the guys come together in one yard. They elect representatives to speak for them. uh, They invite the media in because they understand how important it is to uh, do this in public so that the world can see what's really happening. And they begin to ask for these basic basic human rights um, from the state. Uh, They bring in observers to help them negotiate. And for four days, uh, the world watches as these prisoners try to bring uh, basic human rights into the prison. But they did take hostages, right? They did, and and they and they did at first in a very quite violent fashion. Uh, there was complete chaos. The prisoners were terrified. The guards were terrified, and some of the prisoners grabbed hostages in the in the uh, in the belief that the state would uh, be much more willing to negotiate if they were protecting, if they felt that they had to protect their own employees. And indeed, for four days, I think that did work. That they uh, they had some modicum of protection from uh, an all-out assault from the state because they did have these guard hostages who incidentally um, come to really uh, support uh, many of the prisoner demands. They actually tell the state, please work with these guys. They actually have some legitimate concerns. But ultimately, um, what the retaking of the prison shows is that the state did not value its own employees at all. I have evidence in my book that they knew they were going to kill their own when they went in, and they did it anyway. Mm. And we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I want to talk a little bit about these negotiations. Uh, the The prisoners had uh, several dozen, a couple dozen um, demands. They made a list of uh, over 30. And the state, during negotiations, actually agreed to about 28 of these. Uh, so you would see, think that, uh, okay, the majority, the great majority, were agreed to by the state that that would be enough to end it. But it wasn't, was it? No, and and, and actually uh, really digging into that a bit more in the book, we discover that there's a couple of things going on. Yes, on the surface, many of those demands were uh, agreed to. And these, again, are things like, uh, you know, improving the the sanitary conditions of the men, allowing them to shower more, things that basic, but also 
larger things like improving the parole system or uh, ending slave labor inside the prison. Um, but the men were very savvy, and they understood that the wording and a lot of that agreement was uh, was meant to be uh, vague. Uh, in other words, that these were things that could be rolled back immediately. But most importantly, the state refused to agree to the one thing that, incidentally, uh, everyone, the, the hostages, the prisoners, and the observers knew was critical, and that was that they got amnesty for having rebelled, that if they surrendered, if they gave the hostages back, if they surrendered, that they would not be uh, charged with crimes or physically assaulted. And that's where the state refused to budge. Uh, and it was on that point that negotiations began to break down. Now, this all went all the way to the governor's office. Nelson Rockefeller was the Republican governor of New York at the time. Of course, Nelson Rockefeller went on to become the vice president of the United States. One of the demands was that they wanted Rockefeller to actually show up at Attica. He never did. Why was that important to the prisoners? Well, it's interesting. That wasn't one of the official demands, but it was certainly something that the observers, and again, who the observers were is important. These were including Republican state senators, uh, key uh, journalists like uh, Tom Wicker of the New York Times. They all wanted uh, Rockefeller to come because if he wasn't going to agree to amnesty, they felt that if he at least came, stood outside of the prison and endorsed uh, the proposals that the state had agreed to, agreed that he would not retaliate uh, should the prisoners uh, surrender, that at least him being there would somehow give some gravitas to the uh, to the state's word, right, that it would somehow persuade the prisoners that the state would not harm them if they surrendered. That's what he refused to do. And we now know uh, that in part that was because he had already decided he was going to take the, the prison with violence. And, uh, and indeed, you mentioned he became the vice president. Well, that in part is why he later on will work so hard to uh, make sure that what happened on that day of the retaking remained uh, secret. Uh, Rockefeller maintained that the uprising was caused by black militants. There was a big racial component to this because many of the prisoners, the, the majority of them, uh, were African-American. So I, I just lay that out for some background purposes. Um, four days after the uprising, the decision was made to storm the prison and take it back. I say the decision was made. It was probably made before that, as you said. Exactly. Uh, but uh, the, 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 uh, to storm the prison and take it back came four days later. Uh, now, who were involved in the takeover? And one of the things that really stands out in the book is this was not very well planned. No. So while these negotiations are going on inside of the prison for four days and four nights, meanwhile, outside of the prison, every uh, state troop uh, barrack had sent uh, their state troopers to Attica. They had been milling around for four days, uh, angry really being fed on this diet of rumor that uh, prisoners were doing terrible things on the inside, rumors incidentally we know now coming from the FBI. And these guys were passing out weapons indiscriminately. They weren't writing down serial numbers. They were itching to get inside. That's who the governor sent in on the fifth morning of the uprising. And what ensued was uh, nothing short of a bloodbath. Um, these men took off their identifying badges before they went in, and they went on a shooting spree. And when it all was said and done, uh, there were many dead prisoners and hostages. Uh, 128 men had been shot 
very, very severely. And then uh, the troopers began to torture the prisoners, and that went on for weeks and months. Well, when I talked about uh, it not being very well planned, one of the first things that they did when they uh, decided to retake the prison was to uh, bring tear gas in. And so, you know, from at the very least, even if they wanted to decide, uh, you know, when someone uh, someone's life was in danger and maybe uh, that uh, it was justified a shooting, they couldn't see. So they went in and, as you said, indiscriminately shot people, hostages and prisoners alike, without being able to see who they were even shooting. Well, I think I think what's interesting is that, um, you know, people might assume that the book is anti-law enforcement or anti-guard uh, and only pro-prisoner when you hear a story like this. But in fact, the book tries to do a good job of reminding us that the troopers were put in an untenable situation as well. That, in other words, that these decisions were being made at the highest levels of government. Uh, Nixon uh, was the president. He had one question, and that is, is this a black business? And if it was, it was perfectly okay that there were so many fatalities inside. So the troopers uh, are sent in untrained, uh, many of whom were traumatized by the trauma that they caused and saw. The uh, prisoners suffered extraordinarily. So did the guard hostages. But at the end of the day, the head of the state police, the governor's office, um, the presidency, the FBI, all of the people with the real power came out of this completely unscathed. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Heather Ann Thompson, author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Also, uh, go to WITF's Facebook page. Let's take a call from Gary in Juniana County. County, uh, J- Gary, you're on the air. Hi, thank you very much, and thank you for trying to bring out, you know, part of history that probably is is just, you know, let go. I, I think the people that try this, I remember going through the MOVE crisis. I worked at University of Pennsylvania in research. I was there that day. Now, that was uh, several blocks away, but you could see the fire. You could see all the things, and the stories that were coming out were so one-sided and it took so long to get the truth to come out. And that was something that was right in our backyard. It happened right under everybody's eyes. And the way the newscasters were reporting it, whatever, it was, you know, all the move people's fault. And it just, it's hard for people to get the truth to come out, but it finally comes out. I'm just hoping that the revisionist people don't hurry up then. And, you know, once it gets printed, then, you know, it slightly changes over time. And, you know, that, that's the problem with a lot of this. It finally comes out, but then how many generations from now will it be told the same way? Thank you very much. Gary, thank you very much for your call. Heather, what about that? I mean, it, well, I, 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 I love... I love the caller's uh, reference to the move crisis in Philadelphia uh, because I think that there are such similarities. Um, This is, you know, as the caller said, you know, what the public thinks happens in these moments when there's a conflict between law enforcement and the citizenry uh, is so determined by the way these events are reported at the time. 
And the reason why uh, at Attica, everyone just assumed that uh, the prisoners had killed the hostages, not law enforcement, uh, that prisoners are the worst of the worst, and therefore, you know, we should embark upon a 40-year project of mass incarceration. All of that came originally from the fact that the media uh, spun the story that way. Uh, The New York Times, the L.A. Times, uh, were told that the prisoners had killed the hostages, and without any corroboration, that's what they printed. And so, you know, like with the MOVE crisis, what did Philadelphia's residents read? They read what the reporters were reporting, and what they were reporting was coming from the police themselves. So uh, that's why it is important that we dig into the records independently of both journalists and uh, and the state authorities who are putting out the stories. Uh, one point you just made about the hostages being killed by the prisoners, and uh, I, I do want to get into the investigations, but uh, one of uh, the most striking parts of the story is that a coroner in uh, New York State, in one of the counties, uh, who did the autopsies on the hostages, you know, came out and said they all were killed by gunfire, and that uh, you know there were none of the the prisoners who had access to firearms so that they were killed by those who took over the prison. But that's not the story that came out. Right. And, and, and that's, again, where we have to be so careful when we hear these news stories today about uh, shootings to really, to really probe, to really ask questions. In this case, uh, everybody that was killed on the 13th of September 1971 was shot by law enforcement bullets. But somehow uh, the world was told that the prisoners had slit the throats of the hostages, that they had tortured them, that they had, in fact, castrated one of the guards. And that story not only goes out on the AP and every newspaper in America, but uh, when, a, when a hapless coroner who you know, is determined to tell the truth uh, by going public and saying, no, everybody was shot with law enforcement bullets, he is hounded and harassed. The governor tries to discredit him by saying that he's a communist, interestingly, even though he personally was a Goldwater supporter. Um, And uh, and when that didn't work, you know, when they couldn't uh, fully discredit him, they brought in two other coroners. And when they confirmed the first coroner's version of events, uh, they then said that something different had happened still, which is that, well, if anyone had been shot, it was simply in the crossfire. So... um, (laughs) It really, who dominates the narrative very much determines how history is understood for generations, as your caller points out. As you said earlier, there was major cover-up. Uh, who orchestrated this cover-up? Well, I, I think it's it's not one person. I think it was just this concerted effort on the part of the state police, the head of the state police, who knew that atrocities had gone on on the 13th of September. Uh, It was up to the governor who knew he had ordered that retaking. Uh, And all of the minions in between, uh, they they all understood that they had to stand together. And so the book reveals that they uh, had a series of meetings at Rockefeller's very uh, lush estate in upstate New York, where um, all of these people, including the attorney general who was supposed to be investigating what had happened at Attica, the state police who had, you know, orchestrated the assault and the governor's office who had called for it, uh, met over several weekends. They got their story straight about what happened. The state police allowed uh, particularly or actually 
demanded that one of the more particularly violent troopers uh, uh, left his job. They altered statements. They uh, altered film. uh, They altered photographs. They, you know, buried evidence behind the prison. Um, And out of all of that, uh, I think, was born just a a really decades-long attempt to make sure no one knew the full scope of the story. And we only have about three minutes left, and I I can't go into all the investigations because there were numerous investigations, and the state fought uh, those investigators all along the way. Charges were very slow to come against any of the troopers or the corrections officers. But civil, it seemed that the civil cases, that's when things kind of turned around. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that the the one thing that I want to leave, make sure people realize by the end of the story, is that while it is true that this is uh, an extraordinary effort uh, on the part of people with power to to make sure the story isn't told, the people who are really at the center of the story are the prisoners and the hostages who are determined that the truth will come out and that some modicum of justice will be served. And so at the end of the day, they both uh, take on the state. And even though the state never admits responsibility, at least they do have the opportunity to put their stories on the record and get some modicum of financial uh, recompense at the end. You know, one of the things that uh, if people just looked at the story and uh, they wonder about uh, the credibility sometimes or how uh, effective the criminal justice system is, not just the criminal justice system, but justice system overall, is how long it took some of these cases to make their way through the courts. I mean, there were cases well into the 1990s and 2000s where they yeah. hadn't been decided. That's right. And um, and so what what we come away with in the book, I hope, is a sense that we need to both insist on equal justice under the law, you know, whether someone wears a badge or someone wears a prison uniform, everybody uh, should have the same treatment under the law, and that we also need to, uh, you know, to, to take care to remind ourselves that the people behind bars are human beings, and that if they are not treated as such, they will eventually uh you know, demand to be heard. And, and uh, we need to, to, to really make sure that our prisons reflect our values, not uh, are not places that we're ashamed of and places that we need to hide. We only have about 45 seconds left, and you just kind of answered, partially answered this question, but why is this story relevant today? Well, because today we now lock up more people than any other country on the globe, and the conditions in prisons are worse today than they were in 1971. And while we have some good-hearted people on the inside trying to make it better, uh, the folks on the outside uh, need to first demand that prisons are treating people better. And we won't do that if we don't understand what goes on behind those bars, and I hope this story helps to do that. Heather Ann Thompson is author of the book Blood in the Water, The Attic of Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. Ms. Thompson, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. And uh, so the first show of uh, 2017 here on Smart Talk, we talked about the the past, the uh, the present, and also the future of corrections here in Pennsylvania and across the country. So coming up on tomorrow's program, right to work, another controversial topic ends up on tomorrow's show.